Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Pierre Polyev is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I don't need to tell you that. You know that. that Mr. Polyev joins us for a question and answer segment. We also appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, Mr. Polyev. Let me ask you the question. How are you? I'm great. Feel good, my my little guy, my little one year old, and I uh, just did a little uh, fun workout together. I went out for a little drive uh, to a friend's uh, place and worked out in his living room, and uh, and we uh, then came back and had a little snack, and so I'm having a nice relaxing day, and then I'm off on tour tomorrow. So good okay. times. I bet the little guy put you to shame, eh? Oh, he's something else. Lots of energy, and uh, but that keeps me sharp. Yeah. So let me ask you some questions that really matter to Canadians, because you're running for prime minister. It says so on your Twitter feed, and you've told us throughout your pursuit of the leadership of the Conservative Party. Let's begin with this. Japan's prime minister in Canada, Germany's Chancellor Schultz in Canada, both of them within the last six months, both of them want and need Canada's liquid natural gas, LNG. Mr. Schultz left with a non-binding agreement for hydrogen export from Canada from a plant which has not begun construction and a technology which, as far as I understand, isn't even available. And Japan's prime minister left with a quasi-support from Mr. Trudeau. We need to support our allies. We need to support the need the, the world has for our LNG. It would also help our country and help our social programs and our, and our healthcare system, which is under massive stress. How, what do you make of what's gone on in the last six months with allies appearing here asking for our liquid natural gas? Well, they didn't get very far, did they? Trudeau's basically said, call Vlad Putin. Here he needs lots of natural gas, and he needs to sell it to fund his war machine against Ukraine. And God knows the next country he'd like to invade if he could hustle up enough cash selling his energy that allies can't get from Canada. There's no excuse. We have 1,300 trillion cubic feet of natural gas in Canada, the fifth biggest supply on planet Earth. And when Trudeau took office, there were 15 proposals by industry to build natural gas export terminals with private sector money, not taxpayer-funded boondoggles, but private sector money because they are very profitable projects. They're also terrific for the environment because we can liquefy and, and ship the gas without with very limited emissions due to the fact that we have abundant hydroelectricity in the provinces concerned, B.C., Quebec, New Brunswick, and Newfoundland. And finally, um, we have cold weather, which makes it about 25% cheaper to liquefy the gas than it is in the U.S. Gulf Coast. And when that gas gets to Asia, it will replace dirty coal-fired plants. And natural gas has half the emissions for every unit of electricity it generates. That coal has, and that's why the Americans were able, under President Obama, to reduce their emissions so much. It wasn't because of windmills or solar panels. It was because they replaced coal with gas. Mm -hmm. We could help the world fight climate change. We could defund Vladimir Putin's war machine. And we could turn dollars for dictators into paychecks for our people, including our First Nations people, if Justin Trudeau would just get out of the way and let us build these things. So if you become the prime minister of this country... How quickly do you believe you would be able to change this dynamic and accommodate ethical nations and allies 
will require Canada's natural gas and oil because there are organizations, there are provinces, uh, there are people in this country who would stand, stand in your way. Would you be able to make happen what you've just told us we need? Yes, I would. And we have, like I said, the economics are very simple. The stuff is extremely profitable. Yeah. It is much more, uh, it, the price it fetches in Asia and Europe is much higher than here. So there are going to be private businesses ready to do it. That's why the Americans have been able to open, I think, 10, in the neighborhood of 10 of these massive liquefaction facilities and ship uh, more gas abroad. Um, other countries are doing it. You know, the Germans built a natural gas import terminal in about a half a year. Yes, I do know that. Beginning yeah. to end. Um, and I think it was 194 days from the time they announced it to the time it was importing gas. And yet, in Canada, it takes seven to ten years just to get the government to sign off. What do you do as, bar, what do you do as far as provincial opposition is concerned? Because you're going to run into that. Sure, you have to have a backbone, though, and stand up to the gatekeepers at all levels of government. And by the way, the biggest proponents of these projects are First Nations people. In British Columbia, the Hazla are, uh, people are uh, proposing a natural gas liquefaction prog- pro- program. Uh, so are the Niska and the, all of the First Nations communities along the, the coastal gas link natural gas pipeline are supportive. There are 20 of them, and all 20 of the elected communities are on side. So it is not First Nations standing in the way. They are the biggest proponents of this, and they have actually contributed ideas on how to make these projects even more environmentally friendly. And uh, not only will I support them, but I will arrange, uh, I will make, I will change the law so that the companies that invest in these projects uh, pay the First Nations people and their local governments instead of giving all the money to the federal government. So we're going to put more, we're going to allow First Nations to be the main economic and fiscal beneficiaries when the projects on there are on their ancestral lands. All right, Mr. Pauly, have you mentioned First Nations? And you've been criticized in the last few days for speaking at the Frontier Center for Public Policy in Winnipeg. The think tank has questioned the negative impact on Indigenous children and communities by the residential schools in Canada. What do you say about that? Well, they're wrong on that. The residential schools uh, is one of the ugliest blights on Canadian history. And the uh, group, uh, anybody who questions that is uh, dead wrong. Uh, I speak to hundreds of different groups every single year. Some, I'm sure that many of them, uh, if you look back at everything they've ever said, you'll or everything every one of their members has ever said, um, they've said something wrong. Um, but I disagree with that. You know, for example, CDC, which was the one that provoked this controversy, uh, had 500 of its employees say that CDC acts in a systematically racist way towards its employees. So does that mean I should never speak to the CBC? You don't have to answer that question. But, um, you know... Well, I will, I will if you want. Is, okay, I'm sure you will. But, uh, no, listen, uh, there are plenty of people out there who've said things that I disagree with or that are wrong. But um, I'm going to, I have to go out and uh, spread my message, and I'll continue to do that with my own uh, values, which are clearly against residential schools and in favor of opportunity and hope for First Nations into the future. Mr. Foley, I have five questions. We have about eight or nine minutes. 
Uh, the carbon tax. Let me begin with that in our second segment here. Your predecessor as leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, was against carbon taxes and then changed his approach in 2021. You're steadfast in your opposition to carbon taxes. People will remember Mr. O'Toole. What is your commitment as far as carbon taxes are concerned? I'm going to scrap the carbon tax to lower the cost of gas, heat, groceries, and everything else. So far, the carbon tax has not worked. Everything we've Trudeau told us about his tax has been false. He said it would reduce emissions of greenhouse gases. Instead, they went up. And he hasn't hit a single solitary greenhouse gas target since he put the tax in place. He said the tax would never go above $50 a ton, which is 11 cents a liter. And then after the election, he admitted that he would triple, triple, triple the carbon tax so that it will impose uh, close to 40 cents a ton. That's 40, 40 cents a liter of new taxes on our gases, our gas and more on our heat and other uh, essentials. And uh, he said that people would get back more in rebates. Well, now his own parliamentary budget officer says that 60% of those in those provinces where the tax applies are paying more in car- carbon tax costs than they get back in those little tiny rebates. So everything was false. It didn't work. We need technology and not taxes to protect our environment. I'll incentivize uh, nuclear power, uh, hydroelectricity, and carbon capture and storage so that we can have more carbon-free energy. And I'll allow more of that green energy to go onto our grid so that we can power electric cars uh, into the future. We're going to need to double the supply of, of electricity if we're going to have people switching over to electric. That's vehicles. a huge project. Well, we need to get the government out of the way and let us build more hydroelectric dams in Quebec, Manitoba, and British Columbia. So, we as prime, so as prime minister, you would get out of the way. I would. Well, look, we have, we have to have strong environmental protections, but we don't need to duplicate it. If the provinces have an ironclad environmental system to look to protect uh, the nature and public safety, and they go through all the steps, then we shouldn't duplicate it by spending five or six more years on another federal process. We should have one approval for one project. And that will get us the green energy from hydro, nuclear, and carbon capture and storage that will allow us to supply our grid with the affordable and emissions-free energy that will power an electric future. So in other words, instead of driving the cost of traditional energy up, why don't we drive the cost of carbon-free alternatives down? And I think people are... People are in the mood to accept, I think, increasingly nuclear as an option. I hear it on this program quite regularly. Now, let me move on to uh, the issue of McKinsey. You voiced concern about Mr. Trudeau's government's relationship with McKinsey Consultancy and the $66 million the government paid McKinsey to advise largely on immigration issues. Um, and, and now Mr. Trudeau has asked two of his ministers to look into the McKinsey contract. Are you satisfied? Not even close. First of all, $66 million is an underestimate. There are other contracts out there. Second of all, we can't even figure out what this company does for the government. They got at least $66 million. Media called them and said, what did you do for the money? They can't answer. They called the government, and the minister's offices can't answer. Bureaucrats are calling journalists anonymously and saying, we saw these guys walking around our departments with their 
silly little reports and their presentations. We can't figure out what they did. What do you think they're doing? They got now. What do you think they're doing? I think they're. I suspect they're doing very little of value. And I think that what ha- what's happening here is this is a liberal linked firm where they're t- uh, very tight with Justin Trudeau. The, the former director was a uh, best buddy, Dominic Barton, whom uh, Trudeau appointed as the ambassador to China. And he did this, interestingly, after the company was caught helping to kill tens of thousands of people by promoting um, dangerous opioids uh, and d- opioids, that OxyContin and others. They advised the pharmaceutical companies on how to sell this stuff. And then they got thousands and thousands of North American working class people hooked on it that helped deliver what we have today in the opioid crisis. This is known. The companies had to pay yeah. $600 million to the U.S. government and, U- and state-level governments in settlements for that. Why would we then turn to that same company and give them $66 million taxpayer-funded contract. I want to have a conversation with you. I want to have a conversation with you at some point about chronic pain patients and what they're experiencing in this country, 1.5 million, who are increasingly not able to get the medications they require, which happen to be, in many cases, opioid prescription drugs, but that's for another day. Let me ask you this. Your consultancy or your concern about McKinsey and the way you expressed it, are you seeing anything that resembles ad scam? We don't know yet. It's too early to say. I, I don't accuse anybody of anything until I have proof. Here's the broader issue. Since Trudeau took office, the amount of money spent on high-priced consultants has gone up by 70%, from $10 billion to $17 billion. That $17 billion equals more than 1000 bucks for every single family in Canada. There are 15 million families in Canada. $17 billion equals more than $1,000. Think of your listeners. I want your listeners to think about this. Your family spends $1,000 on federal taxes that go exclusively to high-priced consultants. This is a staggering amount of money. It is. And it requires a major investigation to figure out where it's all. And Mr. Trudeau in 2015 objected to $10 billion, and now it's $17.7 billion. The release of violent he, criminals. He said I think, he was going to cut it, by the way. Remember that? He said I he do was remember. going to reduce yep, I remember. consulting, and he's actually increased it by 70, 70%. 70%. That's like 10% every year. What are we getting for this money? Is anything working in the government? These management consulting geniuses, have they made us get faster passports, more functional airports and airlines? What about the 1.1 million immigrants who are waiting in the queue beyond the acceptable wait uh, time? What has actually improved in this country as a result of this extra $7 billion and extra Do you? I wanted to ask you about crime, uh, but, but do you think you'll be able to get this McKinsey and this consultancy issue before a parliamentary committee, or are you going to be outvoted? We're going to get it. We already got the votes. We, we line, I lined it up. I worked on it uh, over the holidays. We got the opposition MPs on the side. For once, uh, the NDP mostly just does Trudeau's bidding, but for once, they're they're being moderate. They're not standing in our way. So we're uh, we, we're going to get the study, and we're going to get to the bottom of it. I have literally thirty seconds. It demands a lot more time. The release of violent criminals who go on to commit additional and more serious crimes. I've been talking about this for thirty years. I've been inside Canadian prisons. I was on an advisory committee for a Canadian uh, public safety minister. 
And, and what we accomplished and changed in the 90s is rolling back. What are you going to do, Mr. Polyev? Well, I'm going to reverse Justin Trudeau's policies. He brought in a um, catch-and-release bail policy for violent offenders. So uh, when someone's charged, uh, they can get out the same day on bail, even if their charge is a very a violent one, even if they have a long-standing rap sheet. So I think that if you have a, a record of violent crime and you're charged again, you shouldn't get bail. All right. Uh, that's uh, that's how we're going to stop the crime, and we're we're going to bolster our borders instead of banning hunting rifles to keep the uh, real uh, dangerous handguns that are coming in weekly. I decided that I would take the prime minister at his word. I trusted him. I had confidence in him. And so I decided to continue on around the cabinet table with the concerns that I had around SNC because I took the prime minister at his word. Jody Wilson-Raybould on this program shortly after the SNC scandal. And of course, that situation has not been concluded. Is the RCMP still investigating what's going on or what happened? You know that the uh, ethics commissioner, parliamentary ethics commissioner, held Mr. Trudeau in contempt of the uh, the uh, Conflict of Interest Act over how he treated Jody Wilson-Raybould, then the Solicitor General and Justice Minister for Canada. But Ms. Wilson-Raybould still hasn't been able to tell us things that she wanted to share with Canadians. I was in touch with her yesterday or the day before. Um, she hasn't been able to share with Canadians what she wanted to because they won't waive cabinet confidentiality. Well, that is waivable because Harper did it. Prime Minister Harper did it in his cabinet. Anyway, so <laughs> former federal finance minister Bill Morneau in his Where To From Here book is highly critical of Justin Trudeau as prime minister and joins the expanding ranks of previously high-ranking liberal MPs and cabinet ministers disillusioned with Justin Trudeau. Morneau wrote in part, I wish I could talk to him, but his, his team apparently doesn't want him talking to me. It's all right. Uh, he wrote, and I'm quoting uh, from, from a report, soon after the election, 2015, I came to realize that while his performance skills were superb, his management and interpersonal communication abilities were sorely lacking, end quote, adding that advice from his department on directing spending related to COVID-19 was, quote, basically disregarded in favor of winning a popularity contest, end quote. So there are people who will say, hey, that's just Morneau and sour grapes. But there are more people, more formerly high-ranking and, and uh, uh, trusted members of the caucus, and two of them are with me. Selena Cesar Chavan, former Liberal MP for Whitby, Ontario, Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister. Her book is Can You Hear Me Now? They can hear you, Selena. <laughs> That's because you keep having me on your show and you're so gracious. Thank you. Thank you very much. Rick. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you for coming on. Michelle Simpson uh, is, has over time become a very good personal friend, former Liberal MP, Scarborough Southwest, Ontario, and parliamentary seatmate to Justin Trudeau in the opposition years. And Michelle, how are you and what's your immediate response to or reaction, not response necessarily, but reaction to what Mr. Morneau's had to say about the prime minister? I couldn't dis I could not disagree with his words at all. He's very astute and the, the key word he had was Justin is a performer, first and foremost. 
the substance is not necessarily performative. He, he can put on a good show, and that's what he's best at. But failing that, there is no depth, and I've seen no growth since the time we were both elected in 2008. I, ha- I haven't seen any growth to speak of in the man. And you sat side by side in Parliament, yes. and you've told us what, what would happen when he would come in. I, I don't want to turn this into a Trudeau bashing session, but I think it's important that we find out from former Liberal members of Parliament and, and members of his cabinet how, what, what the response is, what the reaction is, how, why they've, they've become disillusioned with Mr. Trudeau. Selena, you were the uh, parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, a prestigious position, and a position as well for an upward direction in the government. But you told me previously, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you told me you began to realize you were being treated as a token by Mr. Trudeau. So, so 100%. And if I, I, I want to reiterate uh, what you said earlier or underscore that this isn't a, a Trudeau bashing session. This is about leadership. And if there, you know, we're hearing the no growth, we're hearing the performance. And the, the challenge here is, um, I have a couple of challenges with Morneau's book, um, but I'll hope we'll get, get to it in the edit, in parts of the conversation. But the challenge here is we have a leader of a G7 country, irrespective of the name, whether it's Trudeau or anybody else. We have a leader of a G7 country at a time where globally, there are geopolitical, climate change issues, um, a pandemic that we need to worry about. And we are seeing someone who has continuously, since before 2015 when I was elected, people have come out and said, one after the other, that this person doesn't have the capacity. And some of us have been brave enough to, to speak those words to truth, um, knowing the consequences. And some of us, like Bill Morneau have waited until now. Uh, I think he could have supported us when we were talking about the, the lack of depth and, and leadership in our prime minister before. He chose to do it now. So the fact of the matter is Canadians have to worry or have to be concerned, or at least question, why so many people are talking about the leader of a G7 country, their leader of a G7 country, in such a way that lacks the capacity and the capabilities to actually lead. You know, and we're talking about the leader who's being talked about from former members of his inner circle, former members of his party. And and I think, and I know in some cases, because I've been told this and probably on the air, although I'd have to go back and listen to some audio, but that Mr. Trudeau was largely responsible for people abandoning the party. I mean, I should also say in my introduction, I apologize to you both. You are both highly educated very professional, very successful women. You were that before you became members of parliament, and you are that today. So you became, you were elected based on your skills and your community's knowledge of who you are. And then subsequently, you lost the, uh, lost respect for, I don't want to put words in your mouth again, I'm trying not to do that. But it, you, you lost, I don't know, respect. They, he lost you. So, um, Selena, again, what, was there a moment, because you've talked to us about the exchange you had with Mr. Trudeau when you told him you weren't going to run again in 2019? It was a very unpleasant situation. He came back at you again. Was that, was that the moment, or were there other moments that just turned you off? No, there was a series of moments. And I think to, to speak to Bill Morneau's um, points in his, in his book, I haven't read it, but the points that have been released, 
is I think a lot of people thought I went into cabinet, into parliament or into um, into government trying to, you know, talk about race on a regular basis. Roy, I, I, I know that, you know, and some of your listeners know that my background is in neurological research. I was, I was co-chairing epidemiology studies. My role of wanting to go into politics was to ensure that Canada had a national brain strategy to help people who live with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, epilepsy, stroke across the age continuum, and to look for a national senior strategy, which we know during this pandemic would have been quite useful. Both of those things were completely disregarded. In fact, they were never even raised. I had metrics. I had previous studies that I had published. I had milestones in which the government could reach. I had previous other jurisdictions that had made investments in a national brave program that had a four to one return on savings for people who were caregiving for uh, persons with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or epilepsy. And none of that was considered. And you have to think, what what would make, what and, and maybe it wasn't a priority at the time, I could totally see that, but it wasn't even looked at. So, you know, Marnot talks about people around him, you know, himself in particular, giving advice, providing information, and it being disregarded. How many real, tangible, life-saving pieces of information have gone past the prime minister or PMO that could be used, that aren't being used? that can make this country greater. That is what we need to be challenging. That's what we need to be really yeah. thinking about. Yes, very true. Very true. And you were such an asset to uh, the prime minister, but he, I think, is in my opinion, he just had a shallow view of what you could contribute to the, to the party and to him. 100%. Right. I was black and I was a woman. And diversity was his that's strength. Right. And he was a feminist. And so that's all I was there for. And, and the, the things that were really important to my constituency and to, I think, with Canadians at large around the brain and around having a strategy for seniors that was national were disregarded. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's a shame. It is a shame. Michelle, were you trying to say something? I mean, what was it that, what was yeah, it that, that turned you off? And well, go ahead. Just say what's on your mind. I, I have to laugh every time I hear, uh, forgive me, Selena, someone say he, he really is like a feminist. He isn't. That's all part of the persona, the performance. Deep down, he doesn't want to hear from a lot of women, particularly women. And I think he's, he's demonstrated that on more than one occasion. He, he finds it rather threatening in some, some regards, and I'm not bashing, but had it not been for his last name, I have no illusions that he would not be the leader of the party. I remember when he uh, attended a mosque in Ottawa, and he required, the mosque required, and Mr. Trudeau supported it, the feminist, supported that his female caucus colleagues enter the mosque through the side door. Now, there's there's custom and there's cultural reality and, and religious realities, and I respect all of that, and I really do, but the prime minister should be speaking for the diversity in his cabinet and the women in his cabinet. Remember what he said? Because it's 2015. It's, it, is, it, is, it is disheartening, and I mean this sincerely, it's disheartening to hear you both and hear other uh, former prominent liberal members of, the, of, of, of parliament and the cabinet speak as unhappily as you are 
about the prime minister. Do you, uh, I know you have to leave us in a few minutes, Selena, and I'm, I'm thank you for coming on. Difficult day for you. Um, do, do you believe that, do you support the position that 54% of Canadians put forward that it's time for Mr. Trudeau to leave? Uh, 100%. I've, I've believed that for quite some time. I think that he should step down. And, you know, he he actually does have some great people around him. Sorry, who are able to, um, to do a magnificent job. Um, there's going to be a challenge coming up with him and, and Pierre and you know, I, I think if, if if the Liberals want to stay in power, they're going to have to do a, a serious reckoning with themselves as to whether or not they keep someone who is clearly in over his head, who's the emperor with no clothes on, in charge of going forward for any further length of time. Michelle, do you share that opinion? Uh, yes, I do. And furthermore, you know, all things being equal, as leadership runs go, he's about reached the end of his tether. Jean Chrétien was nine years, we're, we're just approaching eight years mm-hmm. with Mr. Trudeau. So it's an ideal time for him to leave. And uh, as Selena said, he does have a lot of talent around him that could pick up uh, whatever slack he leaves. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I did a little bit of research on this uh, about a month and a half or two months ago. Mr. Trudeau's own riding of Papineau, his support level, was at its highest in 2015 when he ran to be the prime minister as leader of the Liberal Party. Then subsequently, in 2019, the support in his own riding went down from 2015, and it went down again in 2021 from what he had in 2019. Um, what's happening? What, what do you think is happening inside the party? And you can only stay with us a minute longer. I know, Selena. What do you suppose is going on inside the party? Is there enough? Um, are we seeing frustration bubble to the surface that is eventually going to require Mr. Trudeau to take the walk in the snow as his dad did? I think so. I think there is enough of a sentiment within. Um, again, this, remember, this has been bubbling from about 2016. Leona Alice left left. Uh, Jody uh, Worker-Rabel, Jane Philpott, myself, uh, you know, Morneau is now, is now talking out. There's a number of very high-profile people that, that are saying, at the very least, if there's not something wrong with Trudeau directly, there's something wrong with the operations of the PMO. And remember how Trudeau was very disenfranchised with the PMO around Harper. So there, there needs to be a, a reckoning again. And I think that, that that sort of love for Trudeau has gone beyond now. Just, you know, he has great hair. We are now looking for him to be the leader that this time needs and requires. And I think people are seeing that it's, it's not him. It is a time when uh, countries need leaders, leaders they can trust and believe in, and um, we'll, we'll see what happens when the election rolls around. Selena, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate it. I know you have to run. Thank you again. Always great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Roy. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. You take care. Selena's Caesar Chavon. Michelle, what, what is your sense? You know the party. You are... Um, you were a part of it when uh, when you actually sat with Mr. Trudeau. He hadn't he hadn't become uh, leader of the party by that time, had he? No, but he, it was clear they were grooming him because w- when I was elected, it w- we went through leaders like crazy. 
it was uh, it was Stéphane Dion, and he was short lived before the party dispensed with his services. Then it was uh, Mr. Ignatieff. Well, we had your special moment with him, didn't you? Yeah, (laughs) and uh, he didn't last much longer. So, but I think there is a definite Trudeau fatigue that's setting in. And at the time, I could see it with the senior um, uh, liberals that had been around for a while. They almost literally walked by kissing his ring. And so I could see that coming, that he was definitely going to be, in some way, he was going to become leader. All right, so NBC News reporting that uh, Dr. Paul Offit, pediatrician, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, wrote in the New England Journal of Medicine that evidence supporting new versions of the booster shots for the Omicron variant, which were authorized by the FDA, in August is, quote, underwhelming. Dr. Neil Rao joins us, infectious diseases specialist, Alton Region in Ontario, assistant professor at the University of Toronto Medical School. So, Dr. Rao, what in layman's terminology is Dr. Offit saying? Well, he goes into a lot of interesting discussions. First of all, he talks about how this virus keeps evolving or mutating with new variants that leave us kind of behind the eight ball every time we develop a vaccine what we're using is no longer current relative to what's circulating. And the other big issue he's getting at is that if you've either seen Omicron itself, which 80% of Canadians have already done, or if you've had the vaccine, which more than 90% of Canadians have done, it's almost like your immune system is biased. They call it imprinting towards the strain that you saw or got vaccinated against and that your ability to handle the new strains isn't improved by boosting. He didn't say throw the boosters in the garbage, but he said we really should reserve it for older adults and people with underlying conditions that put them at risk for bad outcomes from COVID, but not to keep trying to vaccinate people to stop infections because we're not winning in that game. What are your thoughts about this? I agree with him. I've been saying something somewhat similar that we had to be more nuanced. In, in 2021, when we went on the booster odyssey, I at one point said we should be pragmatic and not do a redo of the same thing over and over again with the original Wuhan booster that we kept giving people. And I think I was proven right. We couldn't stop infections, but we did stop bad outcomes in people by giving everybody some form of immunity to COVID, either natural infection by happenstance or vaccination. Um, I do think we have a problem and that policy seemed to lag the science It's hard for people having advocated for everyone to be boosted, to get off the train, to get off the horse and say, listen, maybe we need to rethink this. It's not working. The bivalent booster, the problem with it is actually that it has both the original strain and the new strain. From a design perspective, it might have been better if it just had the newer strain. It's still not current to what's circulating right now, but a newer strain rather than trying to mix them together would have been better based on what we're starting to learn. So this brings me to the question I've been asking for some time. And that is, I don't know how you prep a vaccine for a mutation of COVID that hasn't yet been identified. Well, that's so the same challenge occurred with the flu vaccine as well. I think we have to ask yourself, why are we vaccinating? Are we trying to stop infections? And I think the answer is no. If we're trying to help people whose immune systems don't take that well to either natural infection or to the vaccine in terms of having long-term protection against a new infection with a new strain, 
giving them a vaccine, even if it doesn't stop the next round of infection with a new strain that evolves, may actually give them protection against ending up in the ICU or ending up severely ill. So the goal of giving people boosters after either infection or after prior vaccination is almost like a top-up of the immune system to protect them from a bad outcome, but not to stop transmission or to stop them from acquiring it, because you can't. So there's a story on, uh, switch horses in midstream here. There was a story on Global News yesterday, and the headline is Federal Program to Compensate BC Man for COVID-19 Vaccine-Related Paralysis. And it mentions, Julian, it's either Schofield or Schofield. I'm not sure which. I apologize to the gentleman for not, maybe not, well, I'm one way or another not pronouncing it properly. He, uh, he said he did everything possible to protect himself and his family from the coronavirus. Received his first Pfizer vaccination shot in May of 21. Six months later, he went back for his second shot and everything was fine, adding he didn't even have a sore arm after getting the injection. Two weeks later, though, yeah, he said things took a rapid turn for the worse when he and his family were enjoying a day out on the lake. Longer story, somewhat shorter, the doctors finally diagnosed him with acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, or is it ADEM? ADEM? Yes, pretty pretty bad disease, yeah, and, and he's probably in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, I'm yeah. assuming. So, so, so what do we get out of that? What's, what's, yeah, the, so what's the takeaway here? Events. I, I want to be clear, I think my discussion here is less about the safety of the vaccine as the futility of the vaccine boosters for the wrong people. So, I mean, there are terrible adverse effects that rarely occur, and it's appropriate that there is a compensation mechanism for them. We've mm-hmm. heard about myocarditis as well in younger adults. Uh, hopefully not a long-term disaster for those people, but still a serious problem. And again, you get to the question of if you're giving the vaccine booster to people, are you giving it to them where the benefits outweigh these very small risks? So once you get to younger and younger populations, kids, young adults, when you start giving the vaccine to them, you're not really giving it to them to protect them from a bad outcome. They're at extremely low risk of that. So your, the old argument used to be that we were going to stop transmission of this virus by vaccinating people en masse. That was the thinking in 2021 in the early days, but that's not the thinking anymore. So we have to rethink why we are promoting boosters for anyone and everyone and talking about inadequate uptake of boosters in the population and measuring the percent uptake like we're following, you know, a United Way charity drive. Canadians are pessimistic as we begin uh, 2023. 83% of us, think about this now, 83% of us believe Canada is in recession. This is according to Polaris Strategic Insights Annual Economic Outlook. And Dan Arnold is the chief strategy officer at Polara, and he uh, joins us on the Roy Green Show. Dan, I thank you for joining us. I don't know if you would agree with me or not, but do you think we are in a in a um, a strange mood in this country? Yeah, I think I think there's definitely uh, at least a pessimistic mood out there, and I think probably people kind of made sacrifices during COVID and had this dream in their head that the post-COVID world was going to be a wonderful, magical place, and it, it hasn't really been. We've moved kind of from a health crisis into a inflationary crisis, and I think people are feeling the frustration of that. And that definitely comes through in our polling right now. When you ask people about about the economy, about looking ahead to 2023, um, I mean, among the most pessimistic numbers we've seen in 14, 15 years uh, that uh, players have been doing this poll. Yeah, 83% of us 
believe we're already in a recession. It doesn't matter whether we're technically in a recession to, to, uh, to Canadians. We feel that we are, and perception becomes reality. Did that number surprise you? I think so. I mean, I think uh, because, I mean, we're not technically, right? If you asked uh, 100 economists, uh, they would tell you, uh, no, we're not in a recession. Right. But we ask Canadians, and I think it's more of a psychological recession more than anything else. Um, you know, people feel like they're falling behind because their paychecks aren't keeping up with the uh, the cost of chicken and uh, the cost of gas and housing and other yep. uh, essentials. So when you feel like you're kind of slipping behind, you say to yourself, man, the economy's not going great, and that's the feels like a recession, regardless of whatever the official definition is. Uh, it feels like things aren't going great, and it feels like a recession for uh, you know, four or five Canadians out there. And that's true in pretty much every province in the country right now. So it's, uh, you know, you're talking about the country being divided. I guess the one thing that brings us all together is that we're all, uh, you know, suffering through this uh, inflationary period right now uh, everywhere in the country. Yeah. I was at a grocery store last week, and people at the checkout waiting to see the cashier and pay for what they'd bought we're complaining to one another. We're complaining about the cost of what you know the food, but they're also complaining about generally about how much everything costs now and how little disposable income they have left. So this is strangers talking to each other. We sometimes have trouble in this country getting people to talk to each other who don't know each other. But there they were, and I almost jumped in, um, but I was the next in line, so I was I was going to get out of there. The the eighty three percent. I don't mean to laugh about this. The eighty three percent you point out is the highest number since 2009 and the international financial crisis. What's the context here? I mean, that's, that's big. Yeah. And, and I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, usually when people are feeling pessimistic about the economy, if you look historically, uh, it's usually because the job market is, is in rough shape, but that's not the case right now. I mean, we've got near record low unemployment and actually on the poll when we ask people, are you worried about yourself or a family member losing their job in 2023? It was only 5% who said they're very worried, which is actually quite low compared to uh, the last couple of years when we've done this poll question. So it's not so much a driven, it's not so much anxiety or fear of, um, you know, the economy driven by the job market or fear that people will lose their jobs. Uh, you know, it really is driven by that, that cost of living um, uh, question right here. You've got uh, half of Canadians who think that their income is not going to keep up with the cost of living next year. You've only got 14%. I think it's going to get ahead of the cost of living yeah. next year. So I think it really is just that sense that people feel like they're slipping behind. Uh, and, you know, the, the bills are getting bigger, but their paycheck's not. And maybe they've got a job, and maybe they're not worried about losing that job. Um, but the uh, the job is not paying for the things they needed to pay for. And I think that's what's causing uh, that uh, that sense out there. Yeah, that's a, that's a big number. Only 14% optimistic about our economy. So we're expecting... At the very basic core level of how we feel, we're expecting things to get worse for the balance of 2023. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, just, we just finished talking about how bad people feel it is right now. Um, and then when we asked them, how's the next year going to go? Yeah. We thought a uh, majority of Canadians, 56%, we think it's going to get worse next year. And like you said, only 14% think it's going to get better. So, um, you know, people are already not feeling great. And when they look ahead to this year that's coming up right now, um, you know, there's not really a lot of hope out there that things are going to be uh, improving uh, for, uh, for the country, at least when it comes to the economy. Maybe, maybe our hockey teams will do better this year than last year. Maybe the weather will be good. But uh, certainly uh, um, the economy Canadians are not feeling very optimistic when they look ahead. Well, I'm a Montreal Canadiens fan, so I don't have much hope. For, <laughs> for this. And it sounds so strange to say that because I grew up watching the Montreal Canadiens, you know, and it was after 10 minutes in the first period, no matter who they played, it was three, nothing for the abs. And, uh, and so, but, but these are all indicators. And I think it also points to the not Dan to a national mood. 
And we, we yeah, I'm so glad you, you did this because I, I think, I don't think we can continue to just go around being pessimistic. Things improve if we feel better about it and work at it. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. We've actually done some other polling uh, in 2022 around, uh, you know, things that make Canadians angry. And, and we have found a lot of sources of frustration. Obviously, you know, economy inflation is the biggest one right now. But, you know, there's frustration about the healthcare system, even things around, you know, passport delays and kids' medicine shortages. I think there was a lot of things, uh, at least in the latter half of 2022, that were sort of building up and, and causing Canadians to just not feel very good. And, you know, maybe it's a clean slate in 2023. And, you know, we're, we're coming into the year with low expectations, like you said, so it's easy to exceed low expectations at least. And, uh, you know, I think if, uh, you know, maybe there'll be a bit of improvement in some of these economic indicators. I think a lot of economists think that at least the inflationary pressures are going to go down this year. So, you know, at the very least, maybe that will make people feel a bit more uh, rosy as we move further down the year. But certainly at the start of the year, um, you know, I think with everything that's been going on in the last couple of years, Canadians are, are feeling a little worn down by uh, the last two or three years. And uh, I think that's probably why a lot of that hope is not, uh, not there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 